You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, there are torches and then there are torches. Flashlights, if you're American, Iron and Ken. I know you're here this morning. So, oh, I, I knew that when I was a kid because I'd always play around with these flimsy little things. I had no strength, no power in them. And then came along something straight out of the United States. It was heavy duty. It was serious. It was called a mag light. And it was like no torch I'd ever seen before because at the end of this mag light was this funny adjustment. And if you took the torch and you began to twist it, it would take all these rays of light that were heading in a million different directions all around the room and it would focus them into a single point. And now this once flimsy, weak-style torch would pierce into the night sky like nothing I'd ever seen before. There are torches, and then there are torches. What is this passage teaching us? Well, it teaches us how to maglight your life. That the gospel gathers all of your life, and it focuses it into an, an intensity. An intensity and a focus uh, uh, that, that means there's a, a greater power as we grow closer and move toward God. Uh, Paul's experience shows us that the gospel gathers your life... And pushes it to a single point, one thing. Well, it's that time of year again, isn't it? I've got to ask you, how'd your resolutions go for 2010? Uh, mine waved a little bit. In fact, I didn't go all that well, so I figured I'll come up with some new ones for 2011. I'll no longer waste my time reliving the past. Instead, I'll spend it worrying about the future. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll do less laundry and use more deodorant. I will, I will give up chocolates totally, 100%, seriously, honestly. I'll try to figure out why I really need nine email addresses. I'll try and work out whether I should get a different password other than password. I don't know, you can take, uh, you can take some of them, take it or leave it. But it's that time of year again. It's funny, I was reading an article in the paper, one psychologist said that about 90% of the resolutions that we'll make for this year, we're not going to keep. And, and, and part of the reason is we're just doing it so it's a way in order for people to feel better. The question is not so much what we're going to resolve to do in 2011, but why we're going to do it in 2011. Why, if we dare to look much deeper, there's, there's not so much about the type of resolution, but the motivation behind it. What is that? Often for many of us, it's this uh, inner murmur of restlessness, this still small voice that we can never quite keep quiet that says to us, you're never going to be good enough. Always constantly moving and driving and shifting and resolving in order to make things that would, would make us feel better in and of ourselves, that we might feel right and at the ultimate level feel okay with God. It's a sort of motivation that, that, that drives us, that says, I can change me, I can change me through status and achievement and success Ultimately, we're saying to God, hey, I, I can be self-sufficient. I've got my life under control. How do your resolutions stack up against this uh, self-sufficiency? The examples of the why, is it for approval? Is it for this sense of uh, okayness with God? Are you constantly worried about whether he's accepting you or not? Are you trying to control your life? I guess the question all I'm asking first up this morning, are you resolving what to do in 2011 or are you resolving why you're doing it in 2011? Is your Christianity just another resolution for this year? And is that, is that the way the Bible calls us to live? Is Christianity really another resolution where in January we get ourselves worked up and fervent? And I'm going to read more, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to do more. 
No, we're called to live a life of faith and obedience where God changes us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He does the work in us. And when we look at these passages, Paul gives us a wonderful example. Look at his intensity and his focus. How do we get it? First of all, we see that he moved from perfection to participation. Now, does the word lycra mean anything to you guys? Uh, it, 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 it did to me this year when I took up road cycling again for the first time in a little while. And look, talk about imperfections. Lycra is one way to expose all of those, um, particularly when you're just starting off. And so I, I was talking up with my friends and I'd been cycling before and I was kitted up in, in all the gear. I didn't bring it in today for your own benefit. And, <laughs> and I, began to, I began to talk it up. I have been riding before, stretching the legs, getting all ready. I, I, I get out there at West Head with the rest of the boys. I, I get on a, a almost brand new road bike and get out there. And the rest of the guys who've been riding for, for years and years, uh, they, they take off and they begin to absolutely kill me. And, and I am huffing and puffing up these hills to the point where I'm almost feeling sick and they have taken off into the distance. And it's funny how the road can do that to you, but it was a moment of honesty for me as I was uh, reeling from the effects of the lactic acid and, and the breakfast that was starting to come up a little bit after exerting so much effort. And, and I really had to say to myself, I'm, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Well... We can almost feel the same like that in our faith. We get around other Christians and we think, how can we compete with that? I mean, they're so nice. They're so loving. They're just so Christian. And, and I can't compete with that. We're there. We're up in our church lycra. We've got all the gear on. We've got the Bible. But we are huffing up and puffing up the, uh, up the hills of faith. How can we do that? And I'm sure people would have felt like that with Paul. Look at the rap he gives himself in verse 4 to 7. He he says, you think I've got a lot lot to boast about. Check check this out. Uh, I'm from the chosen people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's a good tribe if you didn't know that. From the Hebrews of Hebrews. And when it comes to law, faultless. Hey, talk yourself up, Paul. uh, But I love his honesty here. No, dear brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm not all that I should be. And I'm bearing all my energies on this one thing. Forgetting the past. And looking to what lies ahead. You see, for Paul, perfection gave way to participation. Now, is it a false humility that he's got here? I don't think so. Paul goes a great lengths in the preceding verses of this chapter to explain that he has no confidence in the flesh. It means he's got no confidence in his achievements. He's got no confidence in his success. He's got no confidence in his status as a chosen uh, person from Israel. And in verse 8, he says, I count it all as loss. I throw it all away. How can he do that? Because there's a freedom that Christianity brings. There's a freedom from uh, the driver of 90% of our resolutions. There's a freedom Christianity brings. It's a freedom from the need to prove ourselves. From the inner murmur, you're not good enough. And the irony is that perfection is always the barrier to a right relationship with God. We think straight away, perfection, of course, it's for the people that are living the rough and tumble life. And, and, and you might be one of those people today that feel, I'm just not good enough to, to, to start this whole relationship with Jesus. I've got to get my life in order. But the irony also is that perfection is a barrier for those that also are too good enough to follow Jesus. I don't need Jesus in my life because, well, I'm already living a pretty good life as it is. I've got a perfect life. I'm doing the, the right sort of stuff. I'm reading, I'm praying. 
You see, it's about participation in the divine life. Jesus always begins where you're at. Jesus, if he was in Lycra, is the sort of guy that would uh, sort of take off up the hill. And then when he sees you falling behind, turns the bike around and comes down and rides alongside you. Says, come on, you can make it. Come on, just keep pedaling. Jesus is the sort of cyclist that rides alongside you and you can tell that he's got all the power in the world in those legs to propel him up the hill and still he chooses to ride slowly alongside you. The great counsellor, the one that walks alongside us. It's not about having to get it right. It's about moving from perfection to participation in the peloton of the faith. So the first question is, uh, I just want to ask you, how honest are you being with yourself this morning? As we move into 2011, Paul was honest with where he's at within his faith. No, dear brothers and sisters, I'm not all that I should be. But, but he, was re- he was taking his resolving to revolving. And, and so on that list of resolutions, I've got to ask the Jesus thing. Is, is Jesus on your resolution list this year? Is Jesus on that list of family and friends and I better get the faith worked out? Is Jesus just another New Year's resolution for you? Because in the city where we've got so many different things to do, we've got classes and we've got lessons and we've got cooking courses. We've got so many different things we could do. What, what, have, they, what have they all got in common? Well, it all starts with you. You, you take them up. You go and start the cooking lessons. You go and start the classes. You go and start the courses. And often we, I say, well, I'll take Jesus up. I'll take reading the Bible up more. I'll take praying more. I'll take doing church more. I'll take, I'll take it all up. But Christianity says the opposite. It says you can't become a Christian by taking it up. You can't make yourself one. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You can't take up being born again up yourself. It's a bit of a tricky process. You must be born again. Verse 12, Paul says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, you don't take Christianity up. It takes you up. That's what the passage is saying to us this morning. Paul's pressing on was a response to Christ pressing on him. My pressing on is a response to Jesus pressing in on me. The way that God has taken me out, the way that I've been caught up in the faith. And so we've asked the question, is a Christian life really just another resolution? The other question is, how do we make it a revolution? I'm talking not, not about the sort of thing that happens out of South America or those places in government where it's a bit tough around the world. What I'm saying is that you need a center of gravity. One thing that revolves is the earth around the sun. What I realize is that the earth is hurtling around the sun at thousands of kilometers an hour, and yet it still stays within the same orbit. How, how, how does the earth not just spew off into the darkness in some weird pathway that goes from left to right? It's because there's a gravity. There's a gravity at the center in which it is constantly pulling it into the right direction. You need a center of gravity that's going to allow you to have an incredible velocity in life, but not spin off into the middle of nowhere. Put another way, uh, it's, it's like when you've had uh, the larger, older cousin when you get a trampoline for Christmas and the cousin jumps up and down on the trampoline and you're just the little kid and they're sitting on the trampoline and you can't help but roll into the centre uh, because they're a little bit heavier and the whole thing's pulled down that way. You see, when, when you put Jesus Christ into the very centre of your life, it's like sticking him right in the middle of the trampoline. When you get on that trampoline, remember, perfection, participation... You get on the trampoline, you can't help but roll in towards the center. And so that's what the gospel is in our lives. It's, it's, the gravity of the gospel is simple, that there is one thing. 
Jesus at the very center of it all that keeps every aspect of our life on track. The gospel completely reorients everything. All of our life has been gathered up and being pushed towards one thing. The one thing. What is the one thing? Paul says, only one thing I'm after. What's the prize that he was talking about in this passage? It was to know Christ. Verse 10 says, I consider everything a loss with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He talks about how he wants to share in his suffering, being made in his likeness, uh, being every part of Jesus' life, being made like him, being with him. You see, knowing Christ was the ultimate goal for Paul. Now, it's not just headspace. You know, biblical knowledge is always a, a combination of understanding plus experience. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus gives us the only definition of eternal life that we have in the entire Bible. He says it, it, is, it is to know the one true God, to know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's his definition of eternal life. And so it's always, it means to be in an interactive relationship with him. So Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared with knowing Christ and being found in him. And so what Paul is saying is that being in the presence of Jesus is absolutely everything. That's all that matters. Why? Oh, I worked it out this year, Christmas. Uh, my sister dialed in via Skype into our Christmas lunch. And she's living in Vancouver in Canada. And so we set her up there on, on the table with the computer screen and plugged her into the stereo system. So we had her in 5.1 surround sound just to make it feel like it was a bit closer. But it, it didn't feel closer. You see, we could talk, we could interact, she could be involved in, in the presence and all the opening. But you see, there is, there's nothing like being in the, the presence of someone. To know someone is about having a desire to be in their actual presence. To be able to interact, to see and feel the nuances of that relationship with them. Part of the problem is that many people live a Skype-style Christianity. They interact with Jesus online and, and, and the relationship is always a little bit too much at a distance. They're never really right there in the center of his presence, seeking to be intimately involved with him at the Christmas table like that. Why in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he gives that warning. He says, not all those that say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Eventually he says, get away from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. We can be so involved in ministry and all the things we do in church, but be living a Skype-style Christianity. To know someone is about having a desire to be in their absolute presence. And that's why for real Christians, heaven's going to be a wonderful place. Not just because it's going to be beautiful and wonderful and incredible and more amazing than we've ever imagined. But because Jesus is there. It's about being in his presence. So knowing God is not just about one of life's resolutions. It's life, John chapter 17 verse 3. It's life in and of itself. Knowing God. And Jesus Christ, whom him sent. So, are you living a Skype? Are you living a long distance relationship with Jesus Christ this morning as we head into 2011? If so, why? Are you, are you mad at God? Are you, are you feeling like you're imperfect? Uh, are you feeling you're already not good enough? Look, the, the way you know that you are moving to know God more, the way you know if you're moving from perfection to participation, that your resolutions are becoming revolutions around the ultimate Son. S-O-N. 
The way that you know that you know God is you're beginning to have a consuming passion to want to know him more. How does that work? Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame, sitting at the right hand of the Father. You see, it goes on to say, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, we read these passages and we think, Hey, 2011 is about following Paul's example. It's not just about following Paul's example. It's about following Jesus' example. What did he do? The ultimate light, the light of the world was gathered into an intensity and a focus that gave him a power that allowed him to endure the ultimate pain and the ultimate suffering. How? Why? Because he had one thing. That one thing was you. For the joy set before him, he endured the pain and scorn on the cross. After all the ministry, after all the miracles, Jesus' resolution was to make you his one And as we come to understand that, that's when we make Jesus our one thing, to know Christ. So let me ask you, do you think your life's going in a hundred different directions this year? My uh, tip for 2011 is to mag light your life. Uh, It's not saying that making resolutions are a bad thing in and of themselves, but do you understand not so much what you're going to do this year, but why? Are you going to mag light your life this year? Christianity, the gospel, it gathers all aspects of our life and pushes it, thrusts it towards one thing, to know Jesus Christ. Are you resolving or revolving around Jesus in 2011? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for new starts, for fresh starts, for a new year. Lord, I pray for those this morning that uh, still need to leave aspects of 2010 behind, that they might bring uh, all their energies, Father God, to uh, forget the past and to move on to what lies ahead in Christ Jesus for them this year. Lord, I pray for those that are feeling like they're all over the place, Father, that need uh, that gospel focus and intensity through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if you're stirring in their hearts this morning, that they might uh, come and receive your Son, Jesus Christ, during our ministry time as we gather together. Father God, for each and every one of us as a church, Lord, I thank you for just the foundation that you've laid in this place. Lord, will you continue to open up kingdom opportunities, places where we can participate, Father God, in the incredible and the wonderful and the joyful kingdom that is yours, Father God. And so I ask this year that you might humble each and every one of us, that we might be honest with where we're at, Lord God, and we might move into this year with a spirit of of humility, but also one uh, that rejoices in the fact that we are your sons and daughters, that we are kids of the king, that we are princes and princes of the kingdom. So, Father God, may we take that into this new year. May it be one of excitement and one of anticipation, and in the midst of the inevitable challenges that we will face, both as individuals and a church, may we walk with the boldness and the confidence to know Uh, that your son Jesus Christ walks, cycles alongside us as we move into 2011. Thank you that you sent your son, that you guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that ultimately you're a loving and a caring God that ultimately just wants to know us as we seek to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.